Radical Secular, a podcast dedicated to the separation of church and state and the pursuit of justice. Email us at theradicalsecular at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at radical underscore secular. Follow us on Twitter at radical secular. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hello and welcome back to The Radical Secular. I'm Christoph Defoe. I'm Sean Prophet. Today, my friend Ari Venezia Zahemsky is here with us to discuss abortion and domestic violence, among other issues. Ari is a trained sexual assault and domestic violence advocate. But first, we'll talk to you about the election and its implications, and we'll check in with our friends protesting SARS in Nigeria. But before we get into any of that, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're watching this on YouTube, make sure to smash that red subscribe button. That shit is important as hell. <laughs> and be sure to give us a five-star rating on your podcast host, especially um, it's important that you write us a review on Apple that helps us in the ratings and gets us on their page. Super important. Please do that. Um, also, tell your friends and your family about our show. Word of mouth matters. Also, if you're into reading like Sean and me, check out the Just Words Fallacy Medium publication. Just Words Fallacy is a narrative companion to the Radical Secular Podcast. Our most recent article discusses the emerging problem of deep fake digital media and the implications for democracy. The link is in the show notes. Okay, now let's get into the shirts. Uh, you want to go first, Sean? Sure, I will talk about my shirt. It is an Antifa. Nice. I love it. So you got the, 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 uh, uh, I love it. It's got this almost like Roman feel to it with the, uh, I don't know what they call them on the sides, the leaves on the sides. It's got the three arrows going down that classic sort of Antifa, uh, sort of look. I love it. Yeah. And, and don't call it Antifa because if you so if you call it Antifa, then, then, you know, you know, it's a Trump supporter. <laughs> yeah. Antifa, Antifa or, yeah. or Antifa, anti-fascist. That's what we're talking about here. Exactly. And the reason I'm wearing this shirt uh, is because I'm so pumped, so fucking pumped about the election, but we cannot let down our guard ever. This is a situation where this is a fight and all this kumbaya talk about coming together and getting, you know, and, and the divided country and the, the polarized country. It's like, it's like, come on. All right. We have serious differences with the other side in this country, which we talk about every week. So uh, I'm not letting down my guard for a second. I love it. And I think that's absolutely right. Uh, there is the, the Kumbaya talk is already coming out. And interestingly, I'm wearing the same Joe Biden shirt I was wearing last week. Um, look, it's clean. It's clean. Um, but we're having uh, a friend of ours is coming over later on. And um, I also took a picture of some pictures out in the back uh, backyard uh, wearing this shirt today. And I look, it's just an amazing day. What a celebration. What a relief. Um, I agree with you, though, and I think this is where we're going to, you and I, I suspect here on the Radical Secular are going to split a little bit from the Biden crowd in terms of the kumbaya bullshit and the whole let's um, uh, that we need to sort of accommodate um, that sort of that kind of bigotry on the right. So I am absolutely uh, about our country pulling together, but not at the expense of basic values. Well, yeah, and I mean. I, I'm very, very happy that it went this way because I can only imagine what we'd be talking about right now if Trump oh had won my the election. God. I mean, it would be, it would be, it, we we would be. I can't Despondent? even imagine. We 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 dodged a fucking bullet here, okay? And that's and and that is that is the truth. And it's still not. We may not have completely dodged it because Trump is still tweeting. I mean, he. I just looked before we started taping, and he's he just tweeted out, "I got seventy one million votes. How could I lose?" You know. And so it's just <laughs> it's just like, dude, you lost. 
But right. you know, it's like, you know how you lost, dude? You lost because you got fewer votes than the other guy. Funny, that's how elections work. And you lost even though you tried to suppress the vote and you still fucking lost, you fucking loser. Absolutely. And we, we, we always talk about all the different handicaps and we can get into that, you know, as we get a little bit later in the show, but it is absolutely, it is absolutely a miracle that Joe Biden pulled off an electoral college win, even though the margins were small, he pulled off an electoral college win. And this just shows you he got 5 million, at least more votes than Trump did. And still the margins in these states came down to these tiny numbers, like, you know, 10,000, 10,000 votes, yeah. 10,000 votes, 20,000 votes is what we're talking about. And this is what, we're, you know, uh, Obama, and we might as well just jump right into the election, right? Because we're going to be talking like, we're just going to be talking about the election, right? I and mean, what else That's is it. there to talk about? Right? To talk about. <laughs> um, uh, so look, Obama, spent the entire last you know, two weeks, three weeks of the campaign that he was campaigning hard with the vote mask, right? Uh, and, mm -hmm. and it said vote across it. And and he said that, I remember back uh, in 2016, people were like, he would mention Trump's name and people would like, boo, he would boo. And he said, don't boo, vote, you know? Mm -hmm. And it really matters. Like, it doesn't even matter. It matters so much in these kinds of elections because we are, are talking about 10,000 votes, right? We are talking about, and by the way, we also have to correct for the fact that some portion of the electorate is going to be suppressed, right? So you have to then be, you have to take, we, we as Democrats and as progressives, Biden has to take that that deficit into account, right? And mm -hmm. And on the right, they don't have to deal with any of that on the right. We got to win by somewhere between five and eight percent in mm -hmm. order to actually win the election. And so uh, th and that's this is what what I want to bring up about the polls. OK, because there's this whole uh, this this whole narrative that came out after 2016. Oh, the polls were wrong. You know, and even mm -hmm. now they're saying again in 2020, the polls were wrong. I mean, that was one of Trump's ridiculous conspiracy theories in that despicable dictator speech that he gave Ugh. the other night, which was just awful. One of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. I couldn't even believe it. But anyway, his whole assertion there was that somehow these were voter suppression polls, meaning that by overstating Biden's support, that we would have uh, convinced Republicans not to come out to the polls, which is <laughs> such a laughable concept. A, I mean, like, what are you talking about? But this is this is the this is the the narrative from the right. And I'm going to say that the polls were fine in 2016 and they were fine this year as well, because I think what people are missing is that polls that they're trying to get, uh, they're treating polls like as if it was a fortune teller. And, and I'm not just talking about, you know, a, a, a scam fortune teller. I'm talking about somebody who really could foretell the future. And that's not what polls are. Mm-hmm. Polls are statistical analysis, and they're only as good as the data that you start with, for one thing. And that data is getting harder and harder to collect than it used to be because people aren't picking up their phones, there's no landlines, there's, and, and we've got shifting demographics, and we have one entire political party that does not want to be polled. They believe mm -hmm. that pollsters are part of the deep state, and they're suspicious of pollsters, or they will lie to pollsters. So even against the backdrop of all that interference, what you're actually measuring is not who's going to vote. You're measuring sentiment and you're measuring that sentiment among different groups. We've got likely voters. We've got registered voters. We've got the entire population. You're doing a sample size to try to determine the outcome of the election, but you're not really able to know who's going to go and show up on election day. 
And you're not covering things like the ballot drop boxes being court ordered to be removed in certain counties in Texas. Mm -hmm. You're not counting what's going to happen if the post office slows the mail and doesn't deliver these ballots on time. You're not counting what what's going to happen if you know ballots are rejected or lost or 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 not counted or segregated they're returned late all of these things are when you do an opinion poll you're just measuring sentiment among people who picked up their phones and even with that the polls were still within the margin of error exactly and so Oh, it sounds exactly. like we got some happy Biden people outside your place. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there 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 are definitely some. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, great point because the, when the when the news dropped, it was like a. I mean, I, I was sitting outside having some coffee actually at the time because it's re, it's like absurdly warm here in New Jersey for the, this time of year. It's like something like seventy degrees, uh, twenty two degrees Celsius or something which is like really warm for this time of year. In fact, I'm going to go on a motorcycle trip next week um, for nice. two days because like it's that warm. Um, and so I'm like, fuck it. I'm getting out of here. I've been stressed out for a fucking week and mm -hmm. I want to blow off some fucking steam. Um, but yeah, so there are some Biden beepers out there. Um, but I, I, I think that's really interesting. And that's because I and something that I want to talk to you about, um, I, because you and I, do we both suffered through this week like everyone else did right um and but we both approached the stress of this week very differently right yeah um, i think so but we both right we were both obviously super stressed out so from my perspective like my view and i wonder i wonder how many of our listeners will like sort of see themselves in these various camps or whatever um not that they're opposing but you know what i mean um uh because for me right my instinct was uh was to not look at polls. My instinct was to put my phone on do not disturb and focus on work. Like I spent the, I, I was talking to my wife earlier. I was like, I had one of the most productive work weeks in a really long time because I was like just staring at my screen and trying to pretend like um, that, that what, what uh, that I wasn't um, feeling uh, pins and needles every other moment. Um, and so I, I obviously still wanted to know what was going on and I wanted to know how things were progressing, but I, in the first instance, expected a red wave on, on election night. I was disappointed um, when that the blue wave didn't materialize on election night such that we could just be done with it, right? Like Florida, mm -hmm. like we took Florida or something like that, right? Um, but uh, but so I was dealing with that stress, but my, but I didn't want to deal with like the, the sort of horse race element of it, like the up, the down, the roller coaster. Oh my God, this County, that County, like I, maybe this time I did that last time around. Mm -hmm. Um, but I didn't do it this time around and maybe I was a little bit scarred from that experience. I don't know. But anyway, Sean, what about you? Like how, how like, I know you have a totally different approach to stress. <laughs> well, I, I tend to go into it. I tend to doom scroll. Uh, that's, what I've, <laughs> that's how I've kept myself sane for pretty much the entire four years of the Trump presidency so far was really just just getting into what's going on. What's what's happening? Mm -hmm. Is there a, looking for some glimmer of hope that this was going to come to an end? So as various things happened, as various Trump scandals broke, as the impeachment happened, all these things, you know, I would I would get my hopes up and then have them dashed again. And so in this situation, it was really, I was really just hanging on the edge of my seat for like five days. And yeah. it was tough to get sleep. 
uh, the first night, uh, you know, I really had hoped that we would we would see we would see something approaching what the polls had said in Florida, which is that we were going to win Florida by one or two points. But what was interesting is, you know, getting back to these polls is mm-hmm. that uh, Nate Silver had posted a a chart showing what the results would be if there were a 2016 style polling error of about three percent, and that actually ended up being pretty much how the election played out. And that showed us losing Florida, but it did show us within striking distance of getting Georgia. And I think it was New Hampshire and then Arizona and Nevada and um, Pennsylvania. And so that it, it, and and it showed some of the blue wall States also being within reach with a 3% polling error. And so I think that's kind of what the new, that's the new sort of rule of thumb for elections when you're talking about about polling right now. Although there is no rule of thumb because you've got these outliers, and so. But I think if the average, the poll of polls, if you stay right in the center of that, and then you add three percent for Republicans, is kind of where we are, and yeah. that's how the election played out. You, you know that that is that's interesting, um, and there is a backlash as we know against institutions in general and we talked about you and i talked about this before the show um earlier today because right there is a general sentiment in america and especially among conservatives that um that the media is corrupt right that uh the distrust of experts um uh distrust of institutions and i lump in some ways polling mm-hmm. pollsters in with that same sort of establishment right um and the main and so I think that it's really easy for people to just jump on the bashing polls uh, sort of train and 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 say, look, huh? And I oh. hate it because I hate it because it's another way of saying, well, look, you know, my vote like it doesn't matter anyway. They're just right. a bunch of bums. You can't trust any of them. Let me go back to my little uh, provincial world and 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 go back to my 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 other area ways of 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 understanding the world which is authority religion mm-hmm. gut instinct um right the tradition all these things that are uh are count who that's that stand in for information providing when you don't trust experts well think of the analogy that i used earlier which was of a fortune teller Everybody mm-hmm. wants a fortune teller. We'd all love to be able to foretell the future. And so this is what uh, what polls offer us. They offer us a, a, a glimpse of the future and how something's going to turn out that's a very uncertain outcome. And so you're going to be let down because there is no way to foretell the future. It, it's, a, it's an impossible dream. If people could take a step back and understand that this is just, this is a tendency. This is a, um, <clears throat> this is a projection. This is a, uh, you know, an es- an estimate, and and really look at it with a sense of statistical uncertainty, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is what it is. That the 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 polling errors are anywhere from three to four percent, and they can be in either direction. That's a big spread. That's a and, big spread. Yeah, eight and, points, and, right? Potentially eight point spread, right? I yeah. mean, that's big. Yeah, it's huge. And so when you're dealing in a situation where Democrats consistently have to win by five to eight points to to even get elected, mm-hmm. um, you know, this was a landslide. 
but it wasn't measured properly. It wasn't captured properly by the voting. I mean, if, if anybody wants to talk about election rigging, uh, the Republicans have rigged elections permanently in this country. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I heard recently, uh, and I thought it was really great analysis, that we live in a center-left country with a center-right voting apparatus, right? That's right. And and it, it's set up for minority rule. And that is, and it's set up for minority rule precisely because of white supremacy and racism, because that was the bargain that was struck at the very beginning, right? Let's let the rural states get disproportionate power, right? That was the only way to get them on board. I wanted sort of, uh, I was, a, a friend of mine named Meg, um, I'll, I'll, uh, when we do the show notes, I'll have to uh, do a shout out to her because she sent me an article and, and I'll also do the article. And then I don't remember the name of the article, but it was really fascinating. And it was about this, uh, this, I think I want to say, I can't remember who he's, it's an American, an American uh, professor of some kind. And he has a polling system that he's, that it's not a polling system. It's developed. It's, it's like, it's called, it's, it's called uh, 12 keys. And if the president, the, the, the incumbent president, right. Hits six or fewer of these keys, I think it works. I right? know the article you, you're talking you, you, about. You know I've the article I'm talking yes. about. And, mm -hmm. and and he has predicted correctly, like mm -hmm. election after election after election after election, including including um, Biden. Including Biden, Biden mm -hmm. including Biden, and including including Trump. Yes. In and so yep. when I, I read that maybe a week before the election, uh, mm -hmm. and I and I remember reading that and saying to myself, huh. This makes a lot of sense. And I got yeah. a strange sense of security from that. That's probably uh, why you didn't have to sit there and watch five days worth of election returns. Maybe that's why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that's why. I remember after reading that saying to myself, you know what? I think we're going to win this. I actually tweeted that out. Yeah. I tweeted that. Like at that point, I was like, we're going to win, I think. It you did know? begin to start to feel a little bit like fate as the numbers started to tick up and as these mail-in mm -hmm. ballots came in. And I knew that when Biden came out uh, and he said, we've got this, don't worry. I mm -hmm. knew that his 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 campaign team had been talking to the vote counters. Right. There's a way, these guys know what's going on long sure. before this stuff long is announced we do. on CNN. Uh, and those, those, those are, that's better than polling because you've, you've got data from those districts. And, the, and what I wanted to talk about is that mm -hmm. the Georgia win was something that was, that, that nobody really predicted that it was, no. you know, we were, it was possible. It was possible from Nate Silver, but on the New York Times site, they were, they had the needle going back and forth. And as the Georgia votes started to roll in, it kind of went over to where it became much less likely that, that Biden would win. And then it started coming back. And it ended the night, uh, the first night, with a 0.4% Biden lead as the predicted final outcome. And the reason they knew that is because they were able to actually see how many votes there were left to be counted. They only had that data on three states. It was Florida and Georgia and North Carolina. And hmm. so they were able to look you know, precinct by precinct and see how many votes were still out there. And they nailed it. They nailed it on all three. They wow. predicted Florida was gone, uh, North Carolina was gone, but Georgia was in play for Biden. And yeah. the final to total of Georgia is looking like to come out about 0.2% lead for Biden, and they projected 0.4. So that's the kind of scientific uh, election analysis that that works. And so uh, between Nate Silver and and that sort of election day analysis and your guy that you're talking about, with the, <laughs> the, uh, the keys to the election, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Those are yeah. the types of things that we can we can look at going forward as being 
accurate. But there is no crystal ball. And that's the right. real thing that people have to understand about polling. It's not a crystal ball. Yeah. And this just goes to show, right, how we human beings, we always like to talk about, uh, you know, us, we humans as uh, the human animal, right? Uh, our craving for certainty is, is remarkable, right? We, we, we are a, our brains uh, are pattern detectors, right? So we see certainty where there isn't, um, and we bias and we crave it. And uh, so it's really easy to think. Uh, and, and by the way, right, religion is is all about that, right? It's being able to predict what happens when you die. Yeah, right? we have no idea. We'd rather have a false certitude of what mm -hmm. happens after we die than live with the uncertainty. And that's the same thing with polling. Exactly. And then we and then we get all then we get all uh, bent, you know, bent out of shape when the polling doesn't exactly connect with our prediction. And we shouldn't. And I think that's I think that's a really important point. I'm really glad you brought that up. Now, what do you think, Sean, like in terms of wins, right? What are you excited about coming out of selection? Because we also have to talk about the shitty yeah. things, right? But, yeah. let's, but let's talk well, about the good things. The good, the good news is that when Biden gets into office, he has full control over the government bureaucracy. He has mm -hmm. control over the cabinet. He has control over the Justice Department. He has control over the tone of the country, uh, foreign policy. He can mend immediately these relationships or at least get them on the mend that have been broken and disrupted over the past several years. He can make trade policy as Trump did. Trump put those tariffs on, Biden can take them off. He can rejoin the Paris Agreement. He can do all of these things that are executive branch authorities. What he is going to have a hard time doing is passing any sweeping legislation such as health care or the Green New Deal or anything like that, or expanding the Supreme Court, unless unless we can take those last two Senate runoff elections in Georgia, which that's a tall order, let me tell you. Yeah, that is, I think that's right. And that is a, a huge uphill battle for us. Um, but like you say, the entire the we, let's not and let's not and I with all the hand wringing that we've been dealing with on the left after this election, uh, despite how happy we've been, there's a lot, a lot of hand wringing. Um, but like you say, the executive branch is incredibly powerful, and and whatever. So the first whatever changes that we might be able to, uh, to, to, to push through and whatever uh, ways that we can improve people's lives, it begins with the executive branch. If you don't have that, like even if we had both legislative houses and not the executive, we could like, it would just be vetoed, right? So it, so it doesn't yeah. matter, right? So, right? so the executive branch is critical and the executive branch says, like you said, Sean, I cannot say to sort of emphasize this enough, sets the tone for the country and right like we saw hate crimes go up we saw 
we saw uh, domestic violence go up. We saw these things, these things go up during the Trump era. We saw bullying go up during the Trump era, right? Because, and that had nothing to do with legislation, right? No. That had to do with the tone that that was being set from the top. And then, and then foreign policy, we cannot, the foreign policy thing is fucking huge. Like, it's huge. Huge, because now we can rejoin the global community, right? That's we can right. go back. We can go back. We can rejoin the global community as as the leaders were supposed to be. We won't immediately gain the trust that we've lost, but it's, That's right. it's, it's a process of building it. And I think, again, I think a lot of, of foreign countries and their leaders understand that we were basically attacked. We, we mm -hmm. had a civil war going on. Our, we had a civil war president who was not representing the interests of our country. So they, the old re foreign policy establishment can now reassert itself and we can try to patch over the world order as it's been ripped apart in the last four years. And I think we'll be pretty successful. I think China wants to deal. I think, I think so too. I think our allies are going to be overjoyed that Absolutely. we're talking to them again. Uh, I think that there's going to be some gnashing of teeth with all the kind of the crap they tried to do in is it with with uh israel and and saudi arabia and kind of these 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 fake peace deals that they brokered over there i think are probably going to run into some trouble going forward but it's only four years right when mm -hmm. and this is the problem that that a lot of other countries are going to have dealing with us is that they don't know what's coming in 2024 so yeah still a lot of uncertainty there right yeah. a ton of uncertainty um i do think though and i made this analogy earlier today when you and i talked um and that is we have been under occupation the united mm -hmm. states has been under occupation for four years and mm -hmm. so we had an uh an occupying army occupying the white house occupying the executive branch and for um an executive and what we are doing now, and the analogy continues, right? It was a four-year ordeal. And uh, we, during this past week, we were dealing with, it was like the last four years was like living under a Nazi occupation and then like a totalitarian occupation. And so yeah. we all found ways to cope. We all found ways to get on with our lives and fight and resist. And then it's, this was like D-Day when the paratroopers were jumping into France and the last week was like that. So we were sitting in our homes, anxiety. We didn't know, right? When the allies jumped into France, it was not clear that they were going to win. It was not right. clear that they were going to win. And even though they had overwhelming force, the Nazis were entrenched and they were mm -hmm. determined and they were ready and they were, and they were good. And so yeah. now we are living in a world, we are living now, like today was like VE day. Today was like, the, the lifting of the occupation. And so, yes, I think that, but to get back to your point, I think that uh, other countries, I think we'll see it that way, especially with someone like Joe Biden, which is nice that he's been around for so long. So yes. he, so he has these relationships with these far with these foreign ministers, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he has run ran for president so many times, you know, and he wasn't the the man for those moments, but he was the man. He was the precise man for this moment, and you know, this was also a really really big day for women. Um, look, women, another glass ceiling has been broken. There are many more glass ceilings to break, but this is another one has been broken. This is a big, 
win for black women who has literally saved democracy um, again. Um, right. Georgia is now a swing state. Uh, right. Uh, look, all I mean, because of all because of Stacey Abrams and we we Stacey Abrams should get the Congressional Medal of Freedom. I swear she to really God. should. She really fucking should, man. She and really I think I think should. Biden can probably make that happen. I mean, if yeah. if, if Trump can give it to Rush fucking Limbaugh, oh, I think what a I think fucking insult. It's such an insult. But it, it's still like we know all of those medals were given out under occupation, so they don't mm -hmm. count. Exactly. They don't count. And, and we're not going to let them count these, you know, this, this is, it's absurd and it still does have meaning under the properly constituted government of the United States, a congressional medal of freedom does have meaning. Exactly. And, and so she should get it. And we have to remember that these margins, okay, the margins in these states are in some cases entirely people of color. Mm -hmm. In most cases, because mm -hmm. there's those maps that came out after the 2016 election, you know, uh, who would win, uh, who would win what state if only so and so voted. And in the case of black women, you Democrats win 50 states. Yep. In yep. the case of white people, I think Democrats would win like three states. Right. Which is it's astonishing. I mean, you know, it's really it really. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Sean. Finish your. Finish oh, in it. the case of white men, uh, Democrats would win zero states, not even California. Wow. And that's what's wild. Not even California or New York, you know, like that's what right. the fuck, man? You know, well, so the well, margins in, in like in Arizona, for example, 80,000 Native Americans came out to vote. And the margin in Arizona is something like 20,000. So without those without those Native Americans coming out to vote, state goes for Trump. Same thing in Georgia, same thing in Philly, Philly, Detroit, Atlanta, that is Milwaukee, all, Milwaukee, all people mm -hmm. of color coming out, coming out to support the Democratic Party and save America to kick out this Nazi occupation of our country. Exactly, man. And, you know, I, I as I as I was preparing for the show, I was reminded and I, I think I brought this up every single show since I started reading the fucking book, um, but uh, Black Reconstruction by Du Bois. Um, and, you know, I didn't realize the extent of, let me put it another way, black people have been saving this union for a long time. Uh, the Civil War, the union would have lost the Civil War, uh, mm -hmm. at least arguably, without black soldiers. There's certainly, there's, there, there just wasn't enough. And so, um, you know, black People have stuck have in 2018, right? 2018, um, that was thing. the same thing, right? Um, and then of course 2008 and 2012. Um, but the point is, is that, you know, and I said this to my wife yesterday, is that in some ways, black people protect progressive white people from all of those batshit white supremacists out there, right? The fucking That's Confederates, right. right? Black people are the black wall that defends decency and democracy in this country because white men, especially white men, cannot be trusted, cannot be trusted to vote in any way other than what enhances their own personal interests. That's right. And we have to think about this strategically because one of the issues is that if we don't take the Senate, and mm -hmm. we don't pass sweeping legislation to make mm -hmm. the lives of black people better, the same thing might happen to us again in 2024 or 2028, where you get another white supremacist running and black people are like, well, Democrats really didn't help me. 
And so they either stay home or they vote Republican because in this election, somehow Trump was able to get through and he increased his support among black people by several percentage points. Mm -hmm. And he also dramatically increased his support among Latinos, particularly the Cubans and the Venezuelans, Mm -hmm. but also among Mexicans living along the Texas border. They've been hitting these guys hard with these anti-socialism messages. And what it comes down to the fact that with Latinos, there, there is a chord that the Trumpists can strike inside of, of, of Latino families and Latino communities, because even though they are very, very nasty to immigrants and they insult Latinos all the time, there, there's a resonance of the, with a core of conservatism that happens, particularly religious conservatism. Catholicism is very big. Anti-abortion uh, uh, pol- policy is very big. And so they're making inroads. And this is where we have to stop looking at ethnic groups as monolithic and as a, as voting blocks, because when they were smaller, they were easy to take for granted for Democrats. And now Democrats are going to have to work just as hard on each ethnic group as they have on white people. So true. And that is, that is so important because, and you know, it's really interesting, right? Because this is the problem when uh, we talk about monolithic groups right it's it's very uh white centric american centric white culture centric to think of oh no we are a diverse group of people with various different ideas and views and concepts but they are just one block of people and it's not even just a white thing right i mean this is a uh this is a human thing right we look at we, we look at the out group as just one block of people not as individuals they're they're a horde essentially right Mm-hmm. And so the Democratic Party uh, is roundly and rightly criticized for not p- like picking apart and just assuming, oh, all Latinos must hate Trump because he hates because <laughs> Trump is bad to Latinos. And that is just not true. And I think another I wanted to po- add on a pile on to what you said in terms of the uh, the abortion issue on uh, for Latinos, conservative uh, and, and the Catholicism issue and this and the, and the the third issue there is the patriarchy, and those things are all obviously intertwined. But uh, I want to parse out the, t- the, the the patriarchy because I was speaking to a friend of mine who came over, and I'm hoping to get him on the show one of these days. And I'm going to. Uh, his name is Razib, amazing dude, super smart. We actually went to the same law school at the same time, but we didn't know each other then, um, nice. and we subsequently became friends when he uh, he was a friend of my. Uh, a friend of a friend, and we became friends. Anyway, super smart guy, really interesting guy. And he he came by my house to. Um, he was in the neighborhood. He came by, and we talked social distance talk, talked uh, with masks. Um, and uh, and and he was and he's a progressive, and he was saying that um, he's of Bangladeshi descent. Um, and he was telling me that he knows more than one, like a like you know, a, a, like a a non negligible number of. Of Bangladeshi Americans uh, who are Muslims, who are voting for Trump, who voted for Trump, and you know, and you have the same phenomenon with Latino men. And here's the thing, Sean, and black men as well. And here, and at those numbers have gone up among black men, and it's not black women because ninety-one percent of black women voted for voted for uh, voted for Biden, right? It's black men. That's where those numbers are going up for for conservatives. Mm-hmm. And the and the and the theme that continues through all of this is like, look. I want to be able to dominate my wife. That's right? the bargain. That's, that That's is the bargain. bargain. That's the bargain. I'll I'll vote for you. And and but I just want to be able to dominate my family, dominate my wife, all this woman's woman being powerful stuff. 
I don't like that shit. And by the way, Trump is the quintessential sort of warrior for that old misogynistic, submissive woman approach. Well, and it comes down to the issue of political correctness and cancel culture, which we mm, talked about. That's another a, important one. A million times. And something on the order of 80% of Americans hate the idea of political correctness and hate the idea of cancel culture. It is a it is a slam dunk. It's like it is like a it is like a decimating attack when someone accuses you of cancel culture or political correctness, even though we understand and we talk about this all the time, that these are just simple uh, accountability that we're trying to establish for men. But men see this as such a threat that they mm -hmm. are willing to essentially hurt themselves, vote for somebody who's going to hurt themselves and destroy the country just so that they don't have to ever be be hassled about their language or their treatment of women. Absolutely right, man. Absolutely right. And look, it's, it's, you know, it's classic and, you know, there, there, there are always, there are always people, um, there are always people who are willing to trade in their, um, uh, their their integrity in some ways, right? And and vote against their interests, and act against their interests, and act against their group's interests, right? For their own personal uh, that that sort of that bargain you talked about, right? They're yeah. willing to make that bargain if it means that for them, um, for them, it's going to be a win for them in some way. Well, it goes back to Jonathan Haidt, who we like to rip on, but yes. he made some very, very good points in in his book, The Righteous Mind, and he talked about the elephant and the rider. And I think for mm -hmm. a lot of men, a lot of men, the rider is like, okay, yeah, I should be fair and just and everything else like that. But the elephant is going in a different direction. The this is such a the great elephant, analogy. Great analogy. The elephant is like, I don't want this bullshit. I want to be able to, you know, be caveman, me, you know, the, the chest beating sort of thing is it becomes this overwhelming emotional uh, imperative for them. And was it Robert Heinlein that said you can sway a thousand men by appealing to their prejudices easier than you can sway one man by reason? And that's, right. that's what's going on here with these guys. That's why that's why this was such an incredible coup in this election, because we overcame all of that and all of the voter suppression, and everything else like that. And enough people actually voted with their minds as opposed mm -hmm. to their emotions this time that we are able to get a, a four year respite from fascism. And yeah. We're going to need to fight very hard for the next four years to make sure that we can frame the arguments properly so that we are appealing to people's emotions and not and not trying to have these because we can all argue all day long that defund the police doesn't mean defund the police. Right. And, right. And I, I get <laughs> I get mad at people all the time for for conceding that argument to the right wing. But the fact is, is that when somebody says defund the police, what other people hear is I'm not going to be safe. Exactly. And we have to come up with an emotional response to that an emotional argument why i do believe that we that because black lives matter coined that phrase and and they coined it for a reason uh we have to continue to support it and go and and to show not not tell show america what that means i think that's right and and important in, in terms of uh black lives matter and i think it but we do we should go and, and talk about the other sort of all the shitty things that that <laughs> and the uphill battles that we're going to be facing. Um, but in terms of black, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, black Lives Matter was defund the police 
back when Black Lives Matter was coined, right? Like mm -hmm. it was as incendiary back then. So right. the idea that incendiary names don't work or that the black people, the black community, the black organizers who came up, who, who came up with these ideas don't know what they're talking about is absurd. I mean, it's they absurd. it's absurd. I mean, they have single-handedly made Black Lives Matter. It's written on the street in Washington, DC for fuck's sake, right? Like, and so defund the police is designed to jar people, right? Yes. It's designed to get people's attention. That is what activism is. That's what activism is. is you know, um, we need I, I the want, payoff. We need the payoff, though. Yes, absolutely. I, I want to just before we move on, because I do. I do want to start talking about uh, what we have to do to move forward here. Um, I want to just give the, the press a shout out. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Like like we can all we can rail against the press uh, all we want. But if we if the press hadn't done its job for four years and the press did its job in, a, in an unprecedented way in the last four years, the press got off its ass, right? And look, we can criticize them for not taking X, Y, and Z seriously enough or for both sizing things. And there is a good argument to be had there. But ultimately, and, and, I, and I, I wrote a couple of things down because like, especially during this election, right? They, they have called Trump a liar, right? They yes. called out voter suppression, right? They were yes. not hysterical about this election. They were clear eyed with American people and said, no, the president just got up there and lied. And, yeah. and look, four years ago, that was something that the press would was too scared to do. I and, I, and, and like we can all the we everyone, the press is everyone's favorite punching bag. And I get that. But without them, we would be in even worse situation as a country than we are right now. Horrible. The mainstream press has really held its own and has proved its worth. And I think what I object to the most when people start attacking the media is mm -hmm. that the media is diverse. And mm -hmm. you have this, if you look at the chart of the media, they show the, the, the ones that are more centrist and the ones that are more right and left. And it, it's from Ad Fontes Media. I could put that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. But you have to understand that this is an ecosystem. It's a landscape. And the fringe, uh, the fringe outlets on the chart are despicable. <laughs> on, on both sides and yeah, oh yeah. And, but, but the but the factual reporting that goes on in that center bubble of the chart mm -hmm. is really great and i know the it, chart it's a good one it's a good one yeah it's more reliable than ever and a lot of people will say oh you know again it's the same uh, attack on institutions as when you attack the polls attack the media yes. it's it's it is a lazy absolutely preposterous attack that doesn't hold an ounce of water because if you read New York Times, Washington Post, The Atlantic, The Economist, uh, The Guardian, you know, you could just rattle on, you could, you, you know, CNN, ABC, mm -hmm. uh, MSNBC, you look at the at the mainstream news media, it is more accurate than ever. Exactly, exactly. And and the attack on it is this sort of uh, anti intellectual attack that we've been seeing. Um, and and it, 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 it emerges from the right, because they, they're their policies are not reasonable. And so, right, so you have to then, if you are on the right, you have to then attack the fact checkers, right? Because, right, because your entire policy is premised on lies. So the last thing you want to do is to have fact checkers out there telling everybody that you're lying to them. And so you have to discredit the fact checkers. Well, that's it. And, and the fact checkers they are the only ones who are really pushing back against right-wing media lies. And then so the right-wingers will say the fact-checkers are biased. And then you've just exactly. isolated. And this is to the point where Trump has gotten so bad with his lying that he is now 
trying to insist that the entire media, the entire world is completely getting this election wrong yeah. to the point where he's the <laughs> only one. He's the only, you know, Fox News called it. All of his allies in the media, even even the even the most right wing media called this election. And there's Trump still saying that, oh, this is wrong. They're all lying. It's all fraud. And you get to the point where how far can this go? Exactly. Exactly. It's fucking crazy, man. Um, but look, so let's. Oh, boy, the things that we have to work on and uh, we're kind of short on time, but we we have to hit this. And um, uh, so I want to talk about sort of the red flags, right, that this election has revealed. And first of all, it, you know, it, a lot of, I think, liberals and progressives wanted a full a full throated um, repudiation of Trumpism. We did not get that. Um, I, I just wanted to read something really quick. Um, it'll, take a, take, it'll take about a minute. Um, and I was about to, this New York Times piece uh, that I read recently, an opinion piece that was really outstanding. And I just some excerpts from it. And I'd like to get your uh, sort of response to it, Sean. <clears throat> um, For as much as it seems that Donald Trump has changed something about the character of this country, the truth is he hasn't. What is terrible about Trump is also terrible about the United States. Everything we've seen in the last four years, the nativism, the racism, the corruption, the wanton exploitation of the weak and unconcealed contempt for the vulnerable is as much a part of the American story as our highest ideals and aspirations. And to the extent that Americans feel a sense of loss about the Trump era, they should be grateful because it means they've given up their illusions about what this country is and what it, and what it has been capable of. There is very little about Donald Trump or his policies that doesn't have a direct antecedent in Americans in America's past. The president's racism harkens right back to the first decades of the 20th century when white supremacy was ascendant and the nation's political elites, including presidents like Woodrow Wilson, were preoccupied with segregation and exclusion for the sake of preserving an Anglo-Saxon nation. Trump's indifference to the pandemic is in some in same way in the same way an echo of Hoover of the Hoover administration, which stood by as the country was crushed by economic depression and the immiseration of millions of Americans. The president's lawlessness and that of his administration is the direct outgrowth of a contempt for accountability that stretches across four decades of Republican presidencies, from Nixon to Bush. Americans hold many illusions about the kind of nation in which we live. We tell ourselves that we're the freest country in the world, that we have the best system of government, and that we welcome all comers, that we're efficient and dynamic, where the rest of the world is stagnant and dysfunctional. Some of those things have been true at some points in the past, but none of them is true at this point in time. What Trump has done is made it difficult to maintain the illusion. Yeah, man. I mean, that's that is spot on and you can't solve a problem that you don't acknowledge. And we we already know that the that America is like a carnival funhouse mirror of itself because mm -hmm. of things like voter suppression and the Electoral College. We don't really know what this country would be like if we were actually allowed to vote. And mm -hmm. so we, we what we have is this illusion of democracy, which we've talked about many times. And we have this illusion of equality, which is obviously doesn't exist. And. So Trumpism and the Trump era really pulled back the curtain in a way that that now we can't deny it. And I hope that we moving forward, don't that people don't try to sort of get lulled back to sleep by the fact that we've got a real president. Exactly. And that, that, right. Oh, wow. That is so important, Sean, because right. 
one of my biggest pet peeves, and I know this is actually one of Obama's pet peeves because he talks about it all the time. And um, I am an Obama Democrat. I love that man. Um, as I, I like saying that a lot. Um, but he, one of his pet peeves was like, right, we won in 2008 and then no one showed up in 2010 for the midterms, right? And we won in 2012 and nobody showed up in 2014 for the midterms, right? So the point is that like, those wins lulled we Americans to sleep. And everyone was like, oh, well, let's just move on with our lives. Uh, Obama's got it. I actually remember thinking mm -hmm. that to myself, literally, ah, Obama's got it, right? Everything's uh, fine. The, the turnout, it goes presidential election, midterms, presidential yep. election, midterms. And what happens is, is that right now we're hanging on by a razor's edge in the House. We lost seats in the House. Mm -hmm. We lost... Uh, the state, we lost one state house to Republicans and it's 2020, which means that whoever's in charge in the state houses gets to draw the maps for the next decade. So exactly. this is going to affect the next round of voter suppression. And Rick mm -hmm. Santorum was on CNN and he literally said that he was like, he was like, oh yeah, well, you know, this was a pretty good night for Republicans because uh, we held the Senate and uh, we get to draw the maps for the next decade. It's like, well, thanks for giving away the game that you're just planning on stealing all these elections for the next decade in all these American states because you can. Exactly. You know, it's so similarly, I was watching, I flipped over to Fox and they were like doing, you know, they, everyone has the big screen now. John King on CNN is like, he's he, the best. He, he started it and he's yeah. the best. Like I remember back in the day, like in 2004, right? Mm -hmm. Like he had the most rudimentary screen, like my computer screen is like better than that now, you mm -hmm. know, but like he had the most rudimentary. Now it's like this like insane digital display. Like anyway, the point is that like the guy on Fox, He's talking and he goes into and he, he's looking at Pennsylvania. He goes to uh, Philadelphia and he's like, if you're a Republican, you want to make sure you want to you, you, like, you, like if you're a Republican, you want to make sure turnout is low in Philadelphia. And, and I was like, wait a second, you're just giving away the fucking game, man. Like, no, 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 no. You don't get to like your goal isn't to to shouldn't be to depress turnout. Like, that's not how an election's supposed to fucking work. You know? Well, Trump has blown that wide open now by yeah. basically claiming, you know, he was like, stop the count in, in Pennsylvania while he was ahead and then count all the votes in Arizona where he was behind. You know, it's just like, Come on, dude. It's on. They, 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 nobody is nobody is fooling anyone anymore. Democracy <laughs> has become procedural, entirely exactly, procedural. Exactly, exactly. And look, I mean, I want to point out something about those house. The, the, we lost those the down ballot outcomes, like you were talking about, right? You know, so the um, uh, the house the house losses we lost, and I, I did a little bit of digging on this. The, those a lot of those house. Uh, seats were in seats that we won in 18 against odds, right? So they were mm -hmm. in sort of purple districts, red districts, et cetera. The second piece is, so we shouldn't be too surprised that we lost those in this election. Also, Republicans peeled off of Trump, um, but they didn't, but so they may not have voted for Trump as enthusiastically as they, as they could have, um, uh, but those same Republicans would still vote down ballot for Republicans, right? There's well, that's Republicans. right. They hate Trump, but they but they're still Republicans. And so I think that's like an important sort of caveat here as we think about these down ballot sort of losses. And of course, there was a lot of down ballot wins. I mean, New Jersey legalized marijuana. Uh, oh, right, yeah, uh, absolutely. Right, uh, you know, uh, Oregon decriminalized drugs in general, <laughs> which know? is amazing, that's which amazing. is amazing, <laughs> fucking awesome. Right. I want to go to fucking I want to go to fucking uh, Oregon and just fucking just have a field day. Um, right. <laughs> Mississippi legalized medical marijuana, for fuck's sake. You know, yeah. like, holy shit. I mean, and then tr a trans woman 
um, reading this now, Sarah McBride has won, won her Delaware Senate Senate race, po- po- poising her to become the first and only openly transgender state senator in the United States and the highest ranking transgender official in the entire United States. Huge mm-hmm. win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's and that's really great. And I'm really happy for all of those down ballot down ballot races. I just have to though keep harping on the fact that it's almost a certainty that we will lose more house seats in 2022 true unless true. we can do a Stacey Abrams style registration and turnout operation for the midterms and that's going to be more important than ever because if we lose the house and the senate Biden will be a lame duck president and then mm-hmm. that we have the same problem in 2024 where all the progressives are going to say you didn't do anything mhm it's very very true i think yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And and for, first of all, there's obviously the Georgia Senate races that goes without saying, but that's a huge uphill battle. Mm-hmm. But like you say, for uh, so I think the silver lining, and this is me being an Obama Democrat again, um, and being optimistic and hopeful, and that is what well, the silver lining of 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 there still being a fight to be had is that people are more engaged, liberals and progressives are more engaged now than ever. And so, right. And because we didn't have an, uh, an, uh, uh, like a, like a shutdown win, like there's still this anxiety of like, Oh my God, like, right. Like the problems are still here. Mitch McConnell's going to show up on day one and obstruct and be mm-hmm. a, be the piece of shit that he is and continue to be a really good boogeyman. We talked about earlier about emotional appeal, right? Mm-hmm. Turning him into a boogeyman, he is the Grim Reaper as far as we're concerned, right? Also, the Supreme Court is going to is I think will keep people animated because like basically shitty things are going to keep fucking happening for fucking two years, you know? Like we can't well, stop that much. Well, and that's the next chance to take the Senate is going to be in 2022, mm-hmm. because what's going to happen is, is that uh, uh, Biden is going to sign some executive orders and they're going to get overturned by the Supreme Court. And right. there's going to be other things that are we may lose Obamacare. There mm-hmm. are other things, really, really bad, bad things that the Supreme Court is going to do under Biden's term. And if we don't have the Senate, we're not going to be able to do anything in terms of even getting federal judges uh, appointments approved by the Senate. I mean, it's just going to be. It's total. It's always been total warfare, and I, I I think that that Mitch McConnell may end up working with Biden on some stimulus and some mm-hmm. things that help Wall Street, right? Because right. those guys are owned by Wall Street, and as long as it's going to help Wall Street first, they'll let a little bit of aid through that will get trickle to the rest down, of the economy. Trickle down to the trickle rest down. of us. So that's what I think we could see from Mitch McConnell. We're not going to get anything on on racial justice other than what we can do with the Justice Department with consent decrees and yeah. policing. But yeah. uh, as far as legislation is concerned, as far as gun legislation, as far as, I mean, we're, we're going to be frozen out again, just like under Obama. Yeah, I, but I, 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 I want to push back on that because I agree with you, first of all, in that sense. But I do, uh, but my, again, my silver lining issue here is, again, you know, we are liberals and progressives are engaged in a way that they never were right like like mm-hmm. people know obscure senate rules and shit like mm-hmm. you know right <laughs> people who didn't even know what is what what, the, what what a majority whip was right but like right. now like the joe schmo liberal you know in all these facebook po- groups and whatever knows what that is my point is that like people are off the bench in a way that they weren't in 2010 and secondly 
African-Americans um, are, in, especially African-American women are increasingly being, becoming uh, not just subsistence living. And when you're not, mm-hmm. and, when, and when you're not subsistence living, you can start paying attention to what's going on around you. Right. right. And when you start paying time around, around you, you become, and you become part of the middle class or at least the upper lower class, right. Or the lower middle class, whatever. The point is like, you can, you, you start realizing how, abstract principles and abstract policies affect your actual day-to-day life. And so what I have been walking around and I've seen, you know, I remember as a young person or for most of my life, if I talk to a black person, they don't talk like I do. Right. But now more and more I run into black. Now it's true, of course, that I now occupy an, an, a sort of a middle-class environment. And so that it's more likely the black people I do interact with, but still I've seen a level of engagement, a level of, uh, of understanding of the issues and, and, uh, uh, and education and all these things that, that makes me hopeful going forward in terms of, in terms of the electorate from that perspective. I hope so. I mean, because you are the upper echelon. I mean, Georgetown law degree and all of that, right? That's you're the upper echelon. So right. it's the people that you're not going to see too many people like you. Right, right. Yeah, right. And that's unusual. And so, but like, even, even when I'm walking around and I, and I just interact with your, you know, run of the mill black person, like the experience of doing that in 2020, as a, from my perspective, being who I am in my level of education and, and, and how I was brought up. Um, and the privilege, frankly, the privilege being a being a privileged guy. Um, so, but like my experience interacting with Joe Schmo black person these days, it's very different than it used to be. Okay, like there is just a level of sophistication that I hadn't seen in the past. And so that is what, especially among black women is what is inspiring. And look, we have Kamala Harris, like Black women voted, carried uh, Biden across the finish line. And I think that the numbers are going to, in the end, when those numbers come out and the, and the statistics come out, it's going to, that's going to be clear. And I think that, um, you know, that group of women, that group of people is going to be pretty enthusiastic about Kamala Harris and the rising star that is Stacey Abrams. Um, if I'm Biden, I put her in a very prominent place in, in my orbit. I don't care where it is, but she needs to be like the face of this motherfucker. Absolutely. And I, one final thought about, yeah, yeah, about go for it, man. Kamala Harris uh-huh. is, is that we in this country have no experience. We don't know what it's like to have someone as capable as her in the White House. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She is going to do things that we can't even imagine. And what she's going to unleash in terms of activism and people who are following in her footsteps lower down. We cannot, this moment, and, and it's like, I posted this on Facebook the other day, is that Biden's a big fucking deal. Those are his words, by the way, uh, <laughs> on the passage of Obama. I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. Classic. <laughs> He's a big fucking deal, but but Kamala is a bigger fucking deal for the Huge entire deal. country, for, for our history, for everything. This is an earthquake. Having her as vice president, heartbeat away from the presidency and likely president someday, and that's that's it. That's all I got. I think it's going to be that's that's a huge bright spot in spite of any other problems that we have. Right. And there are many problems. <laughs> and and look, you know, we're going to be talking to uh, to Ari uh, in, in, in a few minutes. And, uh, you know, I want 
and you know, in terms of women and women's issues and women uh, and women empowerment, um, you cannot and glass ceilings being broken. Um, I can I know what it felt like when a black when when Barack Obama was elected as a person of color. So mm-hmm. I can only imagine what that must be like for a woman seeing Kamala Harris right beat the odds school uh that that shitbag pence and then walk on that stage and 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 claim victory it's like it must be incredibly incredibly it's powerful for me and so yeah. i can only imagine what how powerful it must be for 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 a woman and for young women and for girls and be, and and women and girls and, and and women who want uh who want who who are who can be inspired and 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 you know and see someone up there on the stage that looks like them right and has similar experiences to them you know the whole lo- whole lineup in elementary school of all the presidents and you yes. got all these white presidents that go along and then there's Barack Obama at the end the black president okay well if yep. you did a similar line with vice presidents there's never been a black vice president so exactly now we've got both categories covered and we've got a woman and a woman it's so, huge. It's huge. huge, man. It's fucking huge. And so, uh, like this, I think that's a perfect way to, to, to move on. And I, I just want, before we move on, we don't have time to really get into it. I would have liked to, but I would just want to just mention, uh, shout out to our friend, um, Ade in Nigeria. Um, and yes. he, he has been listening to the show and I messaged with him on Facebook quite a bit. And I read a story that I, that I thought was super powerful. Um, there was a guy named Anthony, uh, Yuunde, Yuunde. And he gave his life for a better Nigeria. And he was just an average guy, you know, but what he ended up with a machete in his head um, and and died uh, uh, trying to get help. And he did that because he stepped in the way of 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 of. Of brute of sort of uh you know uh, thugs that were hired by the government to go and beat up protesters right um, and he stood in the way and in he got beaten up a couple times but he kept doing it and he did this over the over the course of a, of, a, of an extended period of time and eventually they came at him with a machete and mm-hmm. he got a machete to the skull and he died and he's become a martyr for the movement and this is a guy who uh, uh, is well loved. He's a really big guy. He uh, tried, but uh, but didn't end up trying to get into the military to go fight Boko Haram. He loved Nigeria. He wanted to see a new Nigeria. And this is what they're up against there. And I just think it's really important that we on this show realize that the United States is not the whole world. <laughs> and we know we like we are just some tiny portion of it. Four percent. Four percent of the world's population. Exactly. And we want to highlight the life and death of Anthony, uh, of Anthony Yuande, that civil rights hero who gave his life for a better, for a better Nigeria. So I just wanted to sort of, uh, to highlight that we can't go into it for in too much detail, but don't worry. Uh, we will be back on Africa next week. Assured. Um, here, 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 here. Uh, so let's move on to our guest segment. Now I'm going, going to, uh, I am pleased to introduce my friend, Ari Venezia Zahemsky. Ari is a first-generation American and daughter of Holocaust survivors. She was raised on social action, social justice, and progressive politics, as well as Star Trek. Ari's work at a national project committed, she works at a a national project committed to promoting transparency and crime reporting. The project grew out of a need for more incident-based information about hate crimes, as well as domestic violence and sex crimes from police departments. She's also a trained uh, sexual assault and domestic violence advocate. And so without further ado, here's Ari. Hey, Ari, welcome to the show. We're glad you're here with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Awesome. Now, uh, tell us about your shirt. 
my shirt is uh, very special to me. It says, keep your theology off my biology. Um, and it harkens back to my very first bumper sticker, which said, keep your laws off my body. I couldn't find a keep your laws off my body t-shirt because I don't know why I couldn't find one. They were not <laughs> available to me. I did a lot of searching for this t-shirt. I have several runners up that I did not wear today. Uh, this was the winner and it's the closest I could get. Um, well, that's awesome because uh, obviously that's sort of the theme of what we're talking about here today, but also it's just a fucking awesome uh, sentiment. And also uh, that just means that we'll have to have you on the show again so you can wear the other t-shirts down the road. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> um, all right. So look, so Sean and I... <laughs> Sean and I already talked about the election in depth, but we want and, we're, and look, we'll get into the main topic of our conversation for today with you. But uh, but obviously, uh, like we talked about earlier, Ari, the donkey in the room, not the elephant, but the donkey in the room Damn on this right. for, <laughs> today is the fucking election. So we want I, I think it's really important that we hear from you, uh, our guests. Uh, like, where are you with this? How are you feeling with this? How excited are you? I'm so excited. I'm elated. Um, I'm a little bit also heartbroken. Um, as you know, Christoph, my dad died from COVID in April. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my first thought was, I mean, I was actually out uh, with some friends this morning having coffee when someone looked up from their phone and said they called it for Biden. And I screamed out loud in a public place, <laughs> um, like loudly. Uh, my next awesome. thought was... <sighs> I wish my dad was alive to see this. Mm. Um, not going to cry. My next thought was there's hope for my daughter who turns 25 next week that she might get a normal life one of these days that she will be able to date again. Um, it's really hard. It's like back in the early 80s or the mid 80s when you were going to go on a date, third date. You're like, okay, where's your HIV test? <laughs> now it's like you want to go on a date with someone. Okay, let's do the rapid COVID test before we go to dinner. Um, it's so complicated to be a person who's not, you know, as lucky as we are to be in these, you know, committed relationships and you don't have to wonder, you know, for people who are single and, you know, my daughter's lucky she lives at home. She's finishing school. She was delayed due to a really bad meniscus injury, um, and surgery. But for people, I know women, friends of mine, men that are friends of mine, that are in their late 30s, early 40s, mid 40s, they did career first, and now they're trying to date with COVID? It's like, and they're alone, alone. They were alone in lockdown. Mm -hmm. Some of them don't even have dogs or cats. That's how alone they were. I mean, that's insane. So I am so thrilled for our country. I am so excited. I mean, I don't even know the right word for Kamala Harris is a... Indian black woman who is going to be, she is our vice president elect and she is a prosecutor district attorney who cares about the rule of fucking law and not, I'm going to make this shit up as I go along because <laughs> my job, and this is a great segue is um, I, I work under contract with a large city's de police department trying to transition them to something called incident-based reporting. And it's something that's being, that has was announced um, actually when, oh God, I think Obama was still president. Um, 
It's called NIBRS, and it's supposed to create the kind of police reporting that gives you information about what actually happened versus four things happened at the at this crime incident. We're going to talk about the one that's the most important or the one that the police judged to be the most important. It was created to shed more light on hate crimes, violence against women and child abuse and specifically domestic violence, sexual assault. So it all so it, right now we have what's called summary reporting. So if you have a hate crime that is also a robbery and an aggravated assault, the police will decide what they want to report. And if they only want to report the robbery and a robbery actually includes assault and they don't want to report any details of the hate crime, they can brush it under the rug because it's their decision. And what they, they use what's called the hierarchy theory. Um, there's no details required. With NIBRS, every single crime they have to answer a yes or no, whether it was a hate crime. They absolutely, it, it's, you can't submit without it. And the ultimate goal is that, oh, and also it requires every department from the smallest podunk department in Alaska to the largest one in the, in the country, which is either New York or LA. I'm not sure they're always in, you know, who's got the biggest department, has to have a, a computerized record management system. Like it's, part of the requirement. And after it's supposed to be February or January 1st, 2021, which is right around the corner, um, it's not a punitive system, but they're going to be coming after people slowly. And then eventually there'll be a punitive system where you won't be allowed to apply for federal grants. Mm. Um, you have to start reporting numbers. And eventually the goal is, and I'm thinking five years down the line, maybe 10 years down the line, it will be an automatic system. You put a computer, you put a police report in and it's going to go directly to the FBI. So they'll be getting this data immediately. Um, something that, you know, Chris, you and I talked about earlier was Ahmed Aubrey in Georgia. Mm -hmm. That report of his murder by two white supremacist motherfuckers sat on a desk somewhere in Georgia for three months before it ever went up the chain in the state. Now, in a, in a situation like Nibers, it never would have happened if we were on real-time reporting. It would have automatically gotten flagged for hate crime. It automatically would have gotten flagged that these people already worked for that. There's no bias when a computer algorithm makes the decision for you. Right. You can't lie. And my experience is that younger officers want this. Hmm. Older officers are afraid of computers. It's just the way it is. Hmm. And... It's the civilian, the civilians within the department that interface with the mayor's office, with the city council, with the people that write the checks that are afraid of reporting more crime, more hate crime, more domestic mm -hmm. violence, more child abuse, anything that's going to make the city look bad. Sure. Because it's all about the dollars and cents. Are people buying here? What are our property values? Do people want to come visit us? You know, Let's hide away the dirty laundry and make us look like, you know, make our city look like the suburbs, make our suburbs look like a castle. Mm. And let's pretend that those areas like 
you've been in DC. Let's pretend that districts six and seven don't even exist. Exactly. All right. All right. I remember we were talking earlier today and, <laughs> and you were saying that I think it was Alabama or Mississippi claims to have had no uh, hate crimes for the last. Yes, that's like, correct. You know, Alabama. Like, just like, I mean, that come possible? on. <laughs> like, like literally nobody believes that. <laughs> well, the, the story is, and I hope that no one that I work with from the FBI ever hears this. They just, they took a grant for a NIBRS transition and basically never did it. Ah, interesting. So they're not really reporting. So that'll all be figured out eventually. There's so, got to be enforcement, though. I mean, how do you, there how do you is, deal with it's, it? It's Well, that's uh, that's way above my pay grade. I'm basically a subject matter expert in crime analysis, which is hysterical if you knew what I was like when I was younger. <laughs> um, Chris, Christoph knows a little bit about what I was like when I was younger. Um, so... The crime analysis and and the conversion of or the matching of like criminal statutes and NIBRS codes and transition from the old way to the new way. And the, you know, basically they have so much dirty laundry to hide in Alabama and Mississippi that they're like, there's no way we're just not participating. <laughs> well, that's it. You can, you can design whatever kind of oversight system that you want, including things like body cameras. But if the cops turn off the body cameras or they don't fill out the report, then what's, you know, what good is it? Yeah. Well, interestingly enough for, for most places, they're so dependent on federal grants to uh, provide things like bulletproof vests and um, training and funding for overtime because most places are, do not, most places don't have the budgets for their police forces that they need. And without federal grants, they wouldn't have the money to survive. This is, a really, um, this, is this is really important. I really, this is really that's a really great point. I want to talk about the Commerce Clause for a second because this is how the entire federal government, though the federal government doesn't have direct power to regulate states uh, in various ways, they have the Commerce Clause. The Commerce Clause is basically the carrot, right? Because you're right. like, look, if you want, if you want our money, and we, by the way, have all of the money then you have to act, act in X, Y, and Z way. But the important thing there then is that the federal government is interested in this stuff, right? So if you have sure. Bill Barr, if you have Bill Barr running the Justice Department, right, he doesn't care about what cops are doing. In fact, he enc he's encouraging them to be lawless. Right, and actually Nivers was, was Comey's brainchild, believe it or not. Interesting, that's interesting. And oh, so- Comey. I know, I know. And it's so funny because you're thinking like Comey's this bastard that ruined everything. <laughs> but back in the did. day, but back in, but, but, and it's so funny because we watched that, you know, my family, we watched the Comey rule, which wasn't, which was, I kind of fell asleep during. But the thing <laughs> about, you know, Comey is that he actually had some really, really good ideas about mm -hmm. policing. He just was a terrible politician. Yeah. And he didn't belong mixing with those people. But, you know, when this came out, when the original, at the original conference where Nibers was introduced to police chiefs, it was, it was pretty well received at the executive level for police. It's the people that are really beholden to politicians that don't like it. Mm-hmm. So like mm -hmm. the the chief operating officers of large police forces that are like the civilian equals of a chief of police. 
who are terrified of what it's going to mean if they don't get, if they're reporting too many crimes. Uh-huh. Right. Because they're right. like, oh, well, is our image, what's our public image going to be like? So it's very interesting. And I'll be very interested to see what happens after January 1st. Um, so if you go on the FBI website and you, ser- you search NIBRS, there's a cr- something called a crime data explorer where anyone, you, me, you know, my dog, if he could use a computer, <laughs> can look up crime stats for any city in the country that's already reporting. Wow. And find out how many hate crimes were reported, how many, you know, murders. Um, You can look at victim stats. You can look at criminal stats. You can look at anything that there is to look at that's being reported by places that are already live on NIBRS. And after January 1st, there's going to be a lot more places. The pilot studies, which I've been in, in on this for almost three years now, my first run was with Court Authority Police in Jersey City. I was at their tech center there, um, getting them ramped up. And now I'm with, you know, DC Metro in Washington, DC, helping them to get ready, um, was for, they got 400 very large and medium sized police forces because they wanted a really good amount of data to go live with January 1st, but COVID and then the George Floyd thing put a lot of people behind in the bigger Uh, cities because uh, they had, first of all, they had, you know, a lot of people came to a halt during COVID. And then second of all, they had people who were unable to, you know, have the, they could, they had to, if people were in the middle of training in June, all of that stopped because depending on the level of um, first amendment, you know, activity that was happening, that's such a PC thing to say. You know, <laughs> that is a very PC way of putting well, it. Well, because well, listen, I'm not going to call. I'm not. I mean, that is what them, it is, though. That is that's what, it, what is. it is. I don't think they were riots. I think those protests were were completely right. And if I wasn't still recovering from a really bad case of COVID, I would have been out there doing it too. But I was too sick to go. I was still like sleeping twelve hours a day and trying to work the other twelve. So yeah. Yeah, I just wasn't able to physically be there yet. Like I want, and it was like a hundred degrees. I could barely stand brutal. up outside. It was I think brutal. it's important too, right? Like uh, speaking of the election, is that those those? I know I'm a little off topic here, but it's not really because we're talking about crime. We're talking about and we're talking about policing um, a little bit here uh, before we go into the next topic. But those protests were the argument from the right certainly was that you are turning off people. Your people, you're pissing off, uh, you know, moderates or whatever. But that gal- also galvanized, I think, the black community, right? hundred percent. Like, like, and and the black community is really, as Sean and I talked about earlier, really is what carried this the Biden across and, and Kamala across across the finish line in the end. Absolutely, and you know, we were talking about the election. I was talking about Kamala, and one of the things that is so encouraging for myself um, in this topic and in the topics that we're going to be discussing is that, you know. It, it was such an insult to hear the Trump and Z talk about law and order. You don't know what law and order is. You mm. know, there is no law and order. And and no one is talking about defunding the police. As a matter of fact, the whole point of incident-based reporting is to look at the areas where law enforcement and community programs need more funding so federal money can be put in that direction. Um, 
you can't keep throwing good money after bad with broken window policing. Right. And stop and fucking frisk, no matter what you want to call it. You know, they call it stop and frisk in New York. They, you know what they call it? They call it the near act neighborhood enforcement and something else in Washington. And I'm like, you know, it's stop and frisk. It's still what stop and fuck? frisk. Right? It's euphemism. still stop and frisk. Yeah, knife euphemism. But you still, <laughs> but the bottom line is police officers are still patrolling through um, uh, minority neighbor, neighbor uh, neighborhoods and just arbitrarily stopping people. Like, so that yeah. that's the bottom line. Right. right. And, you know, there's <laughs> yeah. an epidemic all over in big cities where police, after George Floyd and after Black Lives Matter really started making noise and not because of defund the police, because they're embarrassed to be associated. There has been a rash all over of law enforcement officers that are good people quitting. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, some have been very good people that don't want to be associated anymore. And some are the really bad apples that don't want to get caught. Yeah, right. They don't want accountability. Right. They don't want accountability. And and, and it's interesting because it's been before Nibers is rolled out. I mean, I have to say that, you know, body worn cameras are not like they're an issue in New York, but you can't turn them off at, at this department that I'm at now. Like you just can't turn them off. That's the way it should be across the board. 100 percent. 100 percent. And there, you know, I have to say that I have worked with now, I would say totally over my career in policing, 5,000 different police officers all together through training. And I would say that 90% of them are actually really good guys that want to do the job. Mm -hmm. Um, And the push is from the civilian overseers that, that want them to hide things. Some of the 10% of them. Fascinating. Is that the police union? Is that the police union or what? No, I, I really think it's, um, listen, I think that that and and we can definitely debate this on another show. I think that prejudice is taught. I think uh, racism, not prejudice. I think racism is something that you inherit, that you grow up around it, and and it's what it's it's just like. Some people use Miracle Whip, which is disgusting, and some people use mayonnaise, (laughs) and it depends where you're from. We talked about this on our, our show about evolutionary psychology that yeah, tri- which I listened tri- to tribalism is, is a built in thing. I mean, we've always had it. And so it's just a matter of if there is an incentive in your environment mm-hmm. toward tribalism or away from tribalism. If you're raised to, to believe that black people are a part of your tribe as a white person, that we're all Americans and we all belong, then you're not going to be as racist. But if you're raised to believe it's us and them, then, uh, you know, that that kicks right into your evolutionary heritage. But- how does that explain someone like what's her name, Christoph? That that woman that we talked about, um, uh, black, Candace. Black woman? Oh, Candace that, Owens. Oh, uh, how does that explain her? So that's a complicated question. We've we and we've we, we haven't fully unpacked that on this show. But one thing that is that um, is is there are people. There are always groups. Here's the analogy, Ari. How about? Those Jewish people, because I know you're of Jewish heritage, Jewish people who 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 cooperated with the Nazis, right? There's always some people, traitors, right? There are always some people who who think that it's worth it to them for whatever reason, their selfish interest, um, and and for Candace Owens and specifically, right? If you're a black person who's willing to talk to speak up against. Uh, against progress and against uh, and 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 uh, against just sort of black people, other black people, and, and against the movement, you will get 
unbelievable press coverage. You will be the darling of the right. They will trot you out. And so there's people yeah. that are willing to, to compromise their values, right? In order to get that, that, that Omarosa, there's another it's, one. Oh right? God. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's but a special, a it's a special ecological niche, right? I mean, it's it, because if you, to, to a white uh, supremacist organization, if you can find a person of color who agrees with you, like look at the leader of the Proud Boys. Leader of the Proud Boys is is is, is Latino. He's a Cuban, right, or something? Yeah, like Cuban yeah. descent so, or something. Well, so they're special, the Cubans, from what I understand, <laughs> from other Latino people. Yeah. I my my boss at work is she's Peruvian, and she's horrified by how the Cubans and Venezuelans are voted for Trump, and it's mm -hmm. because they're like they can't. They're so close to it that, that somebody says the word socialism to them and they're all yes, of a sudden they're terrified. Yes. I do have to say, though, I, I was talking about it with my mom, who's a Holocaust survivor, as my dad was. And there's a it's a false equivalency. The, the Jews in the camp that were given a choice to rat on other Jews, it, it was for an extra crust of bread and they were starving. It was sure, for living sure, another sure, sure, day. Sure. And there's a difference between saving your own life and doing it for self-aggrandizement. And I think that's a really different parallel. I think that's an important well, distinction. Yeah. And and really what I'm talking about is, is not in the concentration camps, right? I'm talking about a Jewish person in larger society, right, who calls out other Jews and says, oh, look, that's where they're hiding them. Right. Like, right. Who's out there. Uh, right. That, or, and I can't think of specific names right now, um, but I know that there were uh, Jewish people. Right. That never ended up in the camp in the first place because they were willing to sell out their compatriots. And then this is, and, the, and the equivalent is the uh, the 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 house enslaved, the house slave who right. lives in the house, lives a good life and rats out, um, you know, uh, 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 attempts of, toward freedom or or attempts for slaves to teach each other to read or whatever, which all of which was illegal, of course, you know. Right. But I, but I think but, but I think your distinction is a really important one, though, because we cannot blame people for trying to survive. Yeah, no. I want to say well, like, when you're in the camps and your dignity has been completely stripped away from you. Exactly. I, I, it's like a forced confession by these guys who are taken exactly. prisoner by Vietnam or North Korea. They, they trot them out in front of the camera. They're going to beat the shit out of them if they don't confess. And they've plus they've been tortured already. They're, you know, you're going to confess. There's just no exactly. way around it. There's just no way, right? There's a human right. body. You're, you're, you just don't stand up to that. And look, we are in the end of the day. And this actually is really interesting. And this gets to our evolutionary psychology discussion that we talked about mm -hmm. in the episode that uh, that that uh, last two episodes ago. Um, is that right? We are animals, and in the end of the day, we need we will do whatever it takes to survive, right? Like that is, and and so we are also while we're resting wrestling with these big social issues, we are also at base animals trying to make it by. So if you are in a concentration camp, right, and you are uh, in, uh, like you said, you've been stripped of your dignity, right? You've been beaten to death. You've been starved to death practically. And then you get an opportunity for a crust of bread, right, that might save you or a family member. I mean, hey, look, right? We are animals in the end. Right. Um, well, that's, you're talking about survival. And it's mm -hmm. interesting because one of the things that I've really been thinking about is, what is the difference between the millions of people who voted for for you know Biden and Harris and the people who didn't? And um, the thing that I've been coming across is this terminal lack of empathy. Mm. And, and you talked about that a little bit in the show where you were talking about you know those seven qualities of of people and one of the that are you know decent 
And one of them was empathy. I can't remember the term. Yeah, better angels, better angels, better angel. Better that's what it was. And, you know, empathy is something that, and it doesn't matter where it comes out, whether it's, you know, whether it comes out in that, I, I really see it a lot in, you know, some of the people that are a little bit older than me, I'm a little bit older than you. I call it Gordon Gecko-itis, you know. Mm. They're really pissed off that Trump didn't win because, oh, what about my money? Mm -hmm. um, they won't admit that they're, because they're so focused on their money, they're espousing racism or misogyny. Um, that their daughters or their, maybe they've got grandkids or maybe their their daughters are my daughter's age. And, and that they're, what they're saying is I'm willing to allow a world where I'd be okay with a handmaid's tale for my daughter or her daughters <laughs> or somebody else. I'll be okay with that as long as I get to keep my money. Yeah. Because the first word they think of when they get up in the morning is I, me, and mine. Fact. But, and I can understand a Republican who's wealthy. What I can't understand are these poor redneck people who continually vote for the oppressor who mm -hmm. is robbing them blind. Well, that's because they're off. racists. Yeah, but it's just, it doesn't make any sense unless they're racist because from a financial economic standpoint, it's terrible for them. Yeah. I know. I think, I think also, right, and I, and I, I, wanna, I wanna make sure that we, we cover this is that you cannot, and we talked about this earlier, Sean, earlier in the show, and that is we cannot discount the extent to which uh, misogyny and patriarchy um, uh, motivates motivates voters, uh, male voters in particular, of all races, of all creeds, right? Right. So they, the, you, the ability to control my wife, obviously not me, but you know, whatever. So, in the ability to control my wife is more important to me than my economic future. It's more important to me than the fact that I'm being a race trader, that I'm that I'm selling my I'm right. I'm, I'm let's say I'm a Latino man, or I'm uh, or uh, I'm a Muslim man, and I'm willing to look past the bigotry, the outright bigotry, because Trump is going to defend my ability to dominate my family and my wife in particular. And this is, I think, really important in terms of domestic violence, uh, mm -hmm. right? Because I, I think that you cannot extricate these two issues. I don't think you can extricate those two issues. No, definitely not. I think culture has a lot to do with domestic violence. And mm -hmm. one of the things, you know, it's, it's very interesting, you know, living in Morris County, which is, you know, I've lived here on and off for my entire life. I was born in Union County. No, was that Union County? I was born in Union County, but we moved to Morris County when I was pretty young. And, um, you know, but I've worked in and out of Hudson. I went to school at Rutgers. I've lived, you know, I lived in some other county that I don't want to talk about for like a short time, Sussex first, I think, or Warren. <laughs> I don't know. I lived up in Alamoochee for a hot minute yeah. once for like a month. Um, but seriously, like, we have all cultures. When I was doing my training as a sexual assault and domestic violence advocate, um, we were given culturally sensitive training about dealing with different cultures. And, you know, I'll tell you, the hardest um, culture to penetrate was definitely Muslim or South Asian. Mm -hmm. um, as I've worked with a number of brilliant South Asian women, um, and it doesn't matter if they have 11 doctorates in the most comp in like nuclear physics and microbiology and, you know, 
evolutionary biology. It doesn't matter what at home they are subservient and it is like, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, I've never gotten, and all the times I answered a domestic violence hotline, I never got a call from a Muslim woman. I never got a call from a South Asian woman. Never. What, do they just take it? They don't even report it? Nope. Not in wow. my experience. Now, I haven't done a call in about five years. Mm-hmm. Um, my, you know, my I got calls from, you know, it's interesting also in terms of um, the... Latina community, um, certain Latinas, like I've gotten calls with women who are Colombian, Puerto Rican, Mm -hmm. Cuban, never, um, Guatemalan. Yes. El Salvador. Yes. Mexico. Yes. Um, it really depends where you like every culture is different. One of my first fascinating, my first call ever that I ever went out to the hospital for to meet, um, you know, a survivor, was a woman who spoke no English. She was Colombian. She was being human trafficked um, for slave labor by um, a guy with a a cleaning company. It was so difficult. Um, And I was using Google Translate because I don't speak Spanish. I speak more Spanish now than I did then. Um, It's one of those things I'll learn when I have like five minutes and I should have done it over, but I was not in the shape over the, you know, lockdown. And, uh, it was, you know, she came here, he was holding her visa and her papers and she was working at this cleaning company. And then he sexually assaulted her and said, if she told that he wouldn't get her, give her her green card. And she finally had enough called the police. She ended up in the hospital and, uh, that was my, it wasn't domestic violence. It was sexual assault, but that was my first call out on a sexual assault hotline call. And boy, oh boy, was that a something. I'll bet I was it was like, it was, you know, that was at a time when I wasn't even, I was barely prepared for human trafficking. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about NIBRS and what's happened despite this administration is that human trafficking, um, any prostitution arrest now of someone under 18 is automatically human trafficking, which is amazing. That's a win. As it should be. Yeah, as it should be. Although it's very interesting trying to have that argument with people that have been working in, um, you know, police records for a really long time. They're like, oh, no, it's not human trafficking if there's not a John. I'm like, yeah, it fucking is. Like, you don't need a John for someone to be pimped. Like, they could just be being pimped without a John. Like, it's so interesting. And I find that very interesting with women that are my age and older than me, because like, it's not a victimless crime. You know, it's a mindset. And and I was thinking as I was getting ready and putting my makeup on, I was thinking like, wow, I bet you Chris and Sean aren't putting any makeup on. And (laughs) well, I mean, it's totally okay if you did, but I was also thinking about how, when I was a little girl, I loved Charlie's angels. Um, And I was little when that was on, like seven, maybe six, maybe five. And I was, I remember thinking they would always put them in these really crazy situations where they had to wear these very sexy costumes. Yeah. For some reason. Yeah. They have to wear the sexy guy, of course. Like very practical, very practical, very practical for them to be in like some (laughs) like strip club. Or I remember one where they were all in like, I don't even know what it was. And, and I was thinking like, that's human trafficking. <laughs> like, yeah, right. 
And I was thinking like, no wonder we all grew up women thinking that we dress for men. We like, there are these rules that we have to follow um, that no matter what the situation, like I'm, you know, here, I'm very excited to talk about politics and crime and all that stuff, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm here to talk about domestic violence and abortion. And I'm like, I give a shit whether I have lipstick on, like, really? <laughs> it's like, and this is, this is ingrained into us. And that is not evolutionary biology. That is environmental psychology. It's the environment of wanting to look like what we grew up with and what we saw that we have to please the patriarchy. And that's why I said, fuck the patriarchy before Sean, because yeah, no, I, it's, I say it's, fuck the patriarchy, but I think, I think also a personal adornment of some kind it's, it, it differs from culture to culture. And sometimes it's the men who are adorning themselves. It depends, you know, sure. it's all very cultural, but, but adornment is something that is, that has always uh, raised people's social standing and gotten people attention and uh, from the opposite sex, uh, you know, all that sort of thing. So I, I do think that also there's a component of women dressing for other women in the sense of wanting to be accepted. Uh, there's, a, there's, it's a very complicated thing that you're talking about. It is absolutely. But what I was thinking about, I was, as I was doing it, it's like, I'm going to do this thing. That's really, you know, it, it's interesting. Cause I had conversations with my, you know, my family about the, what stuff I was going to talk about. Cause I wanted them to be prepared when they listened to it, especially my daughter. Cause there's things that she doesn't know that I might mention about me. And I wanted her to be prepared and I was thinking how interesting it was that the things I'm going to talk about are so not lipstick and eyeliner. Mm, right. And it's such a, <laughs> you know, I, I was, um, one of the things I'm really happy about, I, I sent Christoph an email the other day. Um, on Friday, it was possible that um, the Supreme Court, such that it is right now, <laughs> This is the other reason I'm really happy that um, our president-elect and vice president-elect will be taking um, office with or without the help of the current administration. Um, I'm also super happy about the runoff elections in Georgia. Let's not forget about those two elections. Everybody give all your money to those folks. If you're know anybody in Georgia, um, make sure that you remind them to vote. And if you know anybody who's turning 18 in Georgia before that election, make sure that they get registered to vote. Um, we have the ability to, if we win even one, it'll be 48-49. We've got Bernie Sanders as an independent who votes with us usually. And Angus King in Maine backed Biden. He could vote with us, but Kamala Harris is the deciding vote in the Senate. Oh, yeah. When there's a tie. So that's a very good thing. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but there have not always been nine justices on the Supreme Court. There have yeah, been right. more. If we and want to expand the court, it would require the Senate. We have to hold the Senate. And that's, that's what makes correct. those two elections so important. Critical. Absolutely. <laughs> and there have been times where there are people that say that there should be as many justices as there are district courts. And right now there are 13 district courts. So that's a good case for 13 justices, which brings me to this case that I was talking about. In Mississippi, there is one working abortion clinic and they're trying to limit abortions to uh, 15 weeks. And 15 weeks is 
kind of difficult. I mean, it's not a heartbeat law, but they're also bringing up the personhood thing. Like, you know. Oh, the fucking personhood thing. The personhood thing. Like, your baby is a person at conception or when there's a heartbeat or whatever. But then (laughs) they started talking about, well, some birth control can be, I don't even know what the pharmaceutical word is, but it's basically an abortion agent. Like if you take enough birth control pills, you can cause a miscarriage or something like that. Mm -hmm. And like, aren't there like proposed laws out there where they say, right, like even a miscarriage can be can be considered like you can like you can be prosecuted for a fucking miscarriage. Alabama v. Jones. Unfucking insane. Yeah, they arrested a woman for murder because she had a stillbirth. And uh, this was a black woman. They said that she they arrested her for murder because she had a stillbirth and for someone decided that she wasn't sad enough. I don't know why the fuck they arrested her, but they arrested her for murder. Um, it's fucking bad shit. It is bad Complete. shit. And, so and they're going to, they're going to go after birth control next. That's the, that's right, the logical that's, progression. That's what they're <laughs> saying. They're saying that, that a birth control can cause is, is an abortion agent. And where that dovetails with the domestic violence is that, um, you know, so I, uh, in my first marriage a long, long time ago, when my daughter was a baby baby, um, was my, my first, I, we call him the sperm donor. I can't even call him my first husband. <laughs> he was abusive. He was physically abusive. He was emotionally abusive. And he, I was a very different person. I was not the badass feminista you see standing, although I was, and then I wasn't. And it's really interesting because I think what happens to us is that we're young and we have a lot of confidence and then life kicks us around a little bit. And I was really young when I met him. But, you know, you trade in your beliefs for a little acceptance mm-hmm. and then all of us, and I think that all of us go through that, men and women, you trade in your oh, beliefs definitely. for a little acceptance. And as then a young person? Like, yeah, as a young person. And then you're like, how the fuck did I get here? Like, how did I go from keep your laws off my body and campaigning for Bill Bradley when he was in the primary? This is dating back to how old I was. I'm pretty sure it was 1988. Mm. Um, so yes, that makes me 51. And, <laughs> but I don't look it. So that's all that matters. There, and, you, go. Uh, there you go. And, and, and being in the first take back the night March at Rutgers that ever happened, which was because there was a rash of rapes the first semester I was at college and getting really involved with that. Um, and then and, and I guess this was this will tie into the abortion thing. And then, but I got really also heavily into, you know, drinking and drugs because it was the 80s and that's what we did. And <laughs> then it's like 1989, 1989, and I'm, you know, partying it up and it's the clubs in the city and whatever. And I get pregnant and my parents are immigrants and they've built this great life. And I'm supposed to be, and I've got a full academic scholarship and I don't know you know, I was drunk and high when it happened. And it's like, this is not part of your life plan. I had a life plan. My life plan was college and, you know, doing the things. And, you know, it wasn't even a question to me. I went to Planned Parenthood. They, I did not, abortion does not happen at Planned Parenthood. And 99% of the states that Planned Parenthood option happens, they do a test, they give you medical care if you want it, and then they give you a referral if you want it, or you go out on your own. I decided with the guy that I thought might be the father (laughs) that (laughs) 
because it was kind of a blackout thing mm. that I was going to go have an abortion. I didn't consult anyone. I didn't have anyone to consult. I wasn't going to go tell my parents. They're like, they were busy doing like buildings. You know, they got here in 1962. It was 1989. They were just starting to enjoy their life. And I wasn't about to bother them. So I just went and took care of it. And there were people protesting with horrible pictures. And there was really? no, oh, it was awful. It was awful. And in suburban New Jersey, people Ugh, were like, Ugh. you know, and they were like, and I'm like, yeah, I had to walk through the picket lines. And there's nobody to be like, you know, there was no one there holding a sign like, you can have your baby and we'll take care of it for you or we'll pay your medical bills or like whatever. I was a college student. It was way before Obamacare was like, we'll keep you on your parents' insurance while you're in college. I was like, I'm like some, you know, $15 a month college insurance that, and that had like the health center to get me my cough medicine when I needed it, when I got pneumonia every other week, because I was always drinking and outside in the rain at the end of the night at the bars. So, you know, I had that abortion and I thought it didn't bother me. But it turned out that because of the noise from all those right to life groups on campus mm -hmm. and everything mm -hmm. that was around me, I had this noise in my head about what a horrible person I was. And by the time I, and I, of course, started drinking more and doing more drugs to make the noise go away. And by the time I met my ex-husband, the sperm donor, <laughs> I was such a douchebag. Um... I really was convinced that I was a piece of crap, you know, because of what I did. And it wasn't because I thought I didn't grow up thinking that abortion was good or bad. I thought it was just, you know, something that we got to choose. Like we, it was a choice and I would not have been a good mother. I couldn't even remember to do my laundry on time. I used to have to go out and buy new underwear once a week because I could never remember <laughs> to do my laundry. Like that's who I was. Right. Right. And uh, so I just was like, he, we dated, we moved in together. The first day we moved in together, he threw a couch at me. He was a very big, like football player kind of guy. And I'm like, I must deserve it because I'm a bad person. And that's kind of what being a 19 year old and having an abortion and living in this world of negative messaging and without support and things have gotten much better. And I'm not saying there might not have been support if I asked for it. But the messaging that women still receive from the mainstream Christian right garbage shit. This is why we rail at the radical secular about religion, because that's all they're doing. They don't give a flying fuck about the fetus. They don't give a flying fuck about kids once they're born. No. All they're trying to do is recruit you through shame and set you up for a life of potential abuse where you feel so horrible about yourself that you're not able to stand up for yourself because of this indoctrination and brainwashing. A hundred percent. So basically it's very interesting because not long after we moved in together, I was on the pill and I got pregnant on the pill and that usually doesn't end well. And I had a miscarriage and I remember I was devastated because I thought it must be my fault. I must be being punished by God because I had a miscarriage, but it must be because I had an abortion. And then I had oh, so several years up. later. Yeah, not you, years. but not you, but just like that 
like that, that mentality yeah. that, 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 that gets that gets there. thrown that gets thrown on women that that burden that that you know the burden and by the way the entire burden of carrying the child is also right because like the man like where the fuck is he through all of this right and like right so the burden would be on you to carry this baby on you to to, to upend your life right and so and then you also get it from the other side because you're like I'm gonna have an abortion and then you gotta feel bad about that too yep. like what yep. the fuck is that and, and this is bullshit. The other thing. Men should really, really support abortion because how many men would get stuck with child support payments and having to deal with all of this stuff if oh, women please. couldn't get abortions? And this is something that Jordana brings that had brought brought this up. She was a guest that was on our show uh, a, a few months ago, and this is yeah, I heard her. Every man should be uh, just just ecstatic about abortion because it allows- yeah, they should take it out of your paychecks. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. Like the National Abortion Fund. Yeah, we exactly. Agree. Exactly. <laughs> no doubt. You know, and it happened again later that I had uh, an even later in the pregnancy miscarriage, not dissimilar, because I it turned out that I had, you know, a deficiency, a hormone deficiency. And after that, my dad was like, okay, well, let's stop this shit and get you married. So we got married. And uh, not long after that, and you know, I just didn't know how to stop the train at that point. And I was drinking a whole ton. And somehow through all of this, it actually involved tequila and a blackout. I ended up with my daughter, which I would never, ever regret. But after she was born, it was interesting after she was born. And, and this is where abortion and birth control access and domestic violence really dovetail. Once you have a child, I'm the rare, rare exception once I had a child, I was like, I have to get the fuck out of here. But mm. most women are so, but only because he was such an asshole and I knew he wasn't mentally strong enough to fight me because I was so much smarter than him. And also there were witnesses. Other people had seen him hit me. Mm -hmm. One of my good friends, his brother, and I ended up taking her and leaving. It just... The scar, the the uh, the stars aligned, and I literally was like, I I literally took her under one arm and a suitcase under another, and I showed up. I had some place to go. Also, my parents willingly took us back and let me start my life over. I went back to school. My mom used to take her to take daycare every day. I was so fucking lucky. Most women, especially of limited means, the minute a child comes into the picture. If they're really, if they're not someone who grew up with a family like mine, I am so fucking blessed. And I don't use that word like the Jesus people. I mean, <laughs> I am blessed to have grown up with a with a grandmother like mine who was a firebrand from the word go, with a with a father like mine who thought, you know, to the end of time that I would walk on water. And mind you, even though he thought that I was the greatest thing since sliced bread, he still said who's going to take care of you? And I'm like, dad, I'm going to take care of me. And he was like, all right. You know, the bottom line is that most people, most women without access to abortion and birth control end up with more instances. There's more instances of, of, you know, domestic violence. And I have some fun statistics for you. Hold on. Let me put on my glasses. I brought these up before we started. So where do you think this state is that has the most domestic violence? It's definitely going to be in the Confederate states of the Confederate states for sure. Alaska. 
Huh. Oh, Alaska yeah. is notorious for violent crime and has the highest overall crime rate. Nearly 50 percent of all Alaskan English speaking women have experienced intimate partner or sexual violence. Their population is less than a million people. And 50 percent of the women there have experienced domestic violence. The top 10 are Alaska, Oklahoma, Nevada, Washington State, New Hampshire, Maryland, South Carolina, Indiana, and Mississippi. Now, I don't know what New Hampshire's access to abortion and birth control is. I think it's probably pretty good. But the rest of those states have pretty stringent laws mm. about getting access to birth control. Mississippi is one of the worst. I'm really surprised that Louisiana's not on that list. But Indiana, that's Mike Pence land. South Carolina. Florida. Florida? Florida. <laughs> I don't know. Not Florida, I don't, it's, well, that's not in the top 10. Um, Doesn't mean Florida's it's not in the top 20. Florida's percentage is... Hold on. Where is it? I must have missed it. Florida. Where are you, Florida? I don't see you. Well, Out the reason there, uh, being, the, uh, go ahead, John. Oh, the reason I brought it up is I don't know if I don't know if you all saw um, uh, Brad Parscale getting arrested in Florida. And, oh, that was delightful. Yeah. And and what was interesting, <laughs> what was most interesting about it, and I this this kind of dovetails the theory I have about about domestic abuse. He was complaining to the cops that his wife hadn't had sex with him for months. And uh -huh. I, my theory is that is that many, if not most, of incidences of domestic abuse start out with uh women refusing sex and a man getting violent as a result. And I'm wondering if you think that's true, Ari. No, I do not think that's true. I think that most so there's a really interesting um, tool that, that we use to show people what domestic violence really begins as. And it's really about power and control. And it usually begins with a man wants to control a woman's whereabouts. Where are you going? Who are you talking to? What are you doing? So it starts a lot of times with isolation um, Which explains Alaska, by the way, right? Yes. Because, um, yes. right, the most, I, I mean, the, the, you're talking about potentially 70, 100 miles between you and the next person, right? right. Uh, it starts with wanting to have control over what you see. Think about narcissism, too. Like a lot of these people are malignant narcissists who maybe they're not malignant narcissists in the way that Trump is with a big ego. They could be malignant narcissists who hate themselves. Mm-hmm. Which so I think Trump does also does hate himself. Right. But sometimes right. malignant narcissists show themselves like Trump does. And sometimes they're like, you don't love me. You don't care about me. But either uh -huh. way, they are the only things that they think about. And everything that you do is all about them. So if you don't remember to get their favorite cereal, oops, it's all about them. If you don't pay attention to every single thing they do. It's it's not that you have a headache or a stomach ache or just had a baby two minutes ago. It's <laughs> somehow about them. Right. Um, and usually it starts with isolating you from your friends and family. Then it's about everything that happens to them is your fault. Only the bad things, not the good things. The good things are their accomplishments. The bad things are your fault. That sounds the a lot next, like Trump. Yeah. yeah. Then the next thing that happens is they they somewhere in there, they've cut you off financially from having any kind of agency or ability. Mm -hmm. You have no way of uh, escaping. Sometimes they take away the car keys or your ability to go anywhere. Sometimes they even make it difficult for you to um, like, let's say you're responsible for getting the groceries. They don't give you enough grocery money. Then they get mad at you for not getting the right groceries. Then they right. instead of you for not getting it. Mm hmm. 
I heard a story uh, from someone who was who was an abuse victim that uh, about a guy actually disabling the car, like taking out the spark plugs or, you know, they disabling don't want you to it. get away. Yeah. 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 You know, you know what I, I am what I'm thinking about, Ari, as you're talking and I want to sort of try to connect this to what Sean was saying. Sean was talking about like withholding sex. But in my mind, that is that is the power like that you're talking about, right? Because in some sense, right? Because the idea is that like, I'm demanding sex from this woman and she refuses to. Yeah, it is a control thing. The only control sometimes that women have at one point would be to, whether or not they give to have or sex. don't give sex. But I think that a truly abused woman learns at a certain point that that's their only tool. Mm -hmm. And they, they use it to, they use it to, um, bargain, especially if there are children involved. Sure. Like to get, and I'm thinking about some of the accounts that I've read, um, to get more money in the budget to buy stuff for the kids or just to, to get a little bit of peace. And, and so when they talk about, I remember, uh, Ivana Trump talked about marital rape, um, yes. Marital rape. That, that is, never, that never, I never, that's something that I hate that got swept under the rug at, after all this, that like mm -hmm. this woman credibly accused her husband, who at the time was a candidate for president for raping her. And everyone just shrugs their shoulders and moves the fuck on. It's un, it's astounding that rape culture in this, in this country is astonishing. It's astonishing. Absolutely. And I think that the other thing is that in a state where um, birth control and abortion are not accessible. Rape culture thrives. Right. Because why would you need birth control or access to abortion if, you know, sex is, you know, not your option? Like sex is not your choice. I mean, mm -hmm. when I first started learning about criminal code in different states, the first one of the first NIBRS guys, the different states have different Nivers guides and, and there's a crosswalk between different criminal codes in one state to the federal crime codes. And I'm reading Kansas's Nivers guide and I'm like, what the fuck is forcible rape? Like, isn't all rape forcible? <laughs> yeah, like, right, yeah. like, like what voluntary rape? Is that right, like, right, right, right. No, is that yeah. like, is that like role play? Like, what, the what do you, fuck? is that like when you like it rough? I mean, what the fuck? Wow. And, Forcible rape. And then, then there was something, there was another one that had something to do with. There was legitimate rape, legitimate rape. Like if a woman. Oh no, they talked about forcible rape. And then there was something else that had to do with incest. That was not like a, some sort of like mitigator of the term of incest. And I'm like, I can't, I remember what I used, fuck? I walked away from my desk and I went and called my girlfriend who is, what is a former prosecutor and wrote the domestic violence policy for Union County, New Jersey, when she was a prosecutor there. And I'm like, I'm going to vomit. I can't read the code from Kansas anymore. And she's like, I don't know what to tell you. You know, no, in New Jersey, even in New Jersey, certain sex crimes were misdemeanors until our current uh, attorney general changed sure, them. Sure, sure. They were just plain old misdemeanors. And well, I'm like... Well, this goes to show, I mean, the patriarchy and the misogyny that is woven into this country. And you cannot and you cannot separate that from religion. We talk about this all the time on this show, right? Because it's the idea that women's job is to be 
subservient to men um, and baby makers, right? And sure. under and under the thumb and control of men. And there is something super patriarchal about that. But religion is the ultimate patriarchy, right? Like, right, Abrahamic yes. religions are the ultimate patriarchy. Well, re- religion has also set up this idea of of soil. You know, the man is the seed, the woman is the soil. You know, it's mm-hmm. just, so there's mm-hmm. a, yeah. Terrible. I mean, if you've ever read Anita Diamond's The Red Tent, which not. is so this is a really interesting book and it kind of takes this biblical piece of, you know, it's it's the book of Ruth and it takes Ruth and her women. I think it's Ruth, but I could be wrong. I read it a long time ago, but it talks about the red tent, which is the tent where women went during their time of the month and basically were safe from men. Wow. And how this is how women taking care of each other how they would hide someone who was, you know, trying to, how the camaraderie and the, the care of one woman for another became such an important thing. It's where women went to have babies, where women went when it was their time. And I, I just, I wish I could remember all the details, but it's a very interesting perspective. And it's the perspective that you don't see you know, biblically, it was really like, all you get is, and this one begat that one. And how do you think that happened? Like, <laughs> there's no, there, and and the thing is, is that, and, and the children stayed with the women until, of course, girl children were big enough to, you know, start getting involved in what the men had planned for them. And boys were big enough to get involved with what the men were doing. Mm-hmm. And there's no safety for women, you know, in the patriarchy, there's no safety. And one of the things that's so terrifying for me, that was really terrifying for me, and as I've read about different, I don't, I guess I consider them to be cults like the Amish and the Mormons is how young they start. Oh, it's so sick. Start it's so you disgusting. Know, 11 soon as the oh. soon as, uh, puberty and it's you know immediately they're just or right before, on. depending on what they're into, you know. Yeah, Roy Moore so, type style. It's really horrific. And, and but I think that here in you know our modern society, our girls are socialized to the sexuality of of our society at an incredibly young age. And and I'm not like, listen, you know me. I'm a girly girl. I like makeup and clothes and high heels and all that kind of stuff. But when I see, you know, a five-year-old that wants to wear high heels and makeup, even when her mom doesn't because she sees it on TV um, and she's already learning to basically pimp herself out for one reason or another, um, that makes me scared. It makes me scared that she's not more interested in the joy of being alive than than the joy that then making herself look like something like someone who's attractive to a man. Yeah. And that's because our society is still so male dominated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I also think it's really interesting that women are taught to hold their pain. Oh my God. Yes. In a way that men would never tolerate. Absolutely. Some men will tolerate it, but women are really taught to hold their pain. And, you know, here's an interesting story with regard to miscarriage and abortion. Um, 10 years ago, my husband and I got pregnant. And unfortunately, um, I lost the baby. 
And my mother-in-law, who is a Walmart shopping... She'll never listen to this, so I don't care. She is a Walmart (laughs) shopping, really like a limited, um, not really well-educated. She's not... She voted this year in the election for the first time in her life. She had never voted before because she always complained about these different stuff. And my husband said to her, stop talking to me about stuff in politics and the world. If you're not going to vote, you don't get to talk. Mm. Right. Very good. And um, (laughs) she said to me what did you do? What did you do? What did you do? Like, what did you you do? When you mean when you lost the baby, when you lost the baby? Yeah, she's like, what did you do? Like, how did you make Ah. that happen? And I think one of the things that I hate the most, so 52 or 53% of white women voted for Trump, which is- Oh, yeah. They're the fucking worst. Fucking, yeah, (laughs) right here on this beautiful new microphone. Well, this is the flip side of intersectionality we have to really talk about because we, you know, we, is, is the- the breakdown in these, you know, people voting against their interests, whether it's women. Well, this or- is the same as poor people voting for Trump. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. He wants to take away your Medicare, your Medicaid, mm-hmm. your food stamps, Social uh, Security. S- slugs for salt, right? Like, right. Yeah. And, like, right. This is like the, pro, you know, uh, vampires for garlic. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> vampires yeah. for garlic. That's another, I've heard that one. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Really? Like, what's up with <laughs> what that? What the hell is that? You know? Um, right. Look, we're, we're, we're winding down. We're, frankly, but, but I know this has been a great, co- we've been talking for like almost an hour now, believe it or not. Um, wow. It doesn't feel that way at all. It feels like, you know, it feels like we've been talking for 20 minutes, but I got a timer up here and it's been almost an hour. <laughs> and by the way, I started it. I started it late. So we, we've been having a good conversation though. Um, so, all right. I, like, so this has been, it's been really awesome. So I want, what are your final thoughts? Sorry. Like what do you, what, well, what's the takeaway? What do you want our listeners to come away with um, from this conversation? I, hmm, this is difficult. That's um, not an easy question. So, you know, I, 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 and I, and I sprung it on you. So, okay. So, <laughs> I would like them to come away with the fact that um, we are we are on the cusp of one of two things, civil war or um, no, we're on the cusp of some healing and that's amazing. But there's a lot of people in our country that still do not understand that um, it's not just about me. You know, it's not just about me and the six feet of space around me, um, that everyone is affected by the way that we vote and the things that we do. Um, And also that we're going, we may go into another lockdown. Um, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I know you, Christoph, live kind of like you're in lockdown. I do too, Mm -hmm. to a certain extent anyway. Um, Sean does too, yeah. We've we've been locked down since since March. Since March. Yeah, yeah. me too. (laughs) Domestic violence has risen probably Mm -hmm. 25 to 35 percent. Mm-hmm. since Trump has taken office because people just like racism and acts of hate have risen specifically anti-black and anti-Semitic acts. Mm-hmm. Um, it is up to you, everyone who's listening. It's up to all of us to do what we can to make people understand that these are not acceptable. We can't just say, Oh, another shooting Oh, another, you know, the day of the election, there was a Jewish cemetery that was, you know, desecrated in Michigan by Trump people. It's disgusting. There's, you know, if you think there's someone in your life that's suffering from, you know, relationship violence or relationship, um, not even physical violence, but just relationship marginalization, you know, they need help. There's resources out there. 
Um, it doesn't have to get to that point. And quite frankly, being abused in a relationship doesn't start with hitting. It starts with being told that you're the reason everything's wrong mm. and making you feel like by the time you get punched or hit or pushed that you've earned it. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, and if you need help, there is help to be had. Um, I will make sure that there's resources for the show notes. So if people do need help or need help for other people that they can get it. Um, unfortunately, in a lockdown situation, the angrier that we get, the more stunted we feel, the more frustrated we are at our situation. Because listen, I want to go to the mall and not wear a mask. I want to go to a movie and see it on a big, big screen. I want to go hang out with Christoph and Lindsay and see their cats. I, I just, I want to do some <laughs> stuff. I want to go to the city for dinner tonight. Yeah. It's beautiful mm -hmm. out. And I can't. Um, I'm lucky to be in a really great relationship, but not everybody is. And some people don't know what to do with their frustration and people have lost jobs and their finances are, are really, really tough. And some people, and women are not the only one being, aren't the only ones being abused. There's in 25% of, you know, certain situations, there are men that are having abuse and same sex relationships. There's a lot of abuse. Mm -hmm. There's help and remember that it doesn't start when you get hit. It starts when you're being gaslighted. And we all know what it's like to be gaslighted. We've been being gaslighted for the four fucking country. years. The whole country. Entire country. <laughs> the whole goddamn country. So <laughs> I guess that's my message is that um, domestic violence is not something you see on a Lifetime fucking movie. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. everywhere, all around. And um, the right to have... Um, our biology left alone by their theology is something we're going to have to continue to fight for. Um, please remember the Georgia runoffs. Donate what you can to those two uh, elections. And I'm sure that you guys will put that in the show notes too. And uh, I don't know. It was so great to be here. I really am looking forward to wearing a different t-shirt and coming back to talk about some other stuff. So that's it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ari. It was a, really a great conversation. Um, you uh, you really, I think, hit on a lot of interesting points, I think. Um, and, and look, thanks so much for being here. It was my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank you. All right. Well, that was awesome. Uh, Ari was just really just an amazing guest. I think it was a really useful conversation. What do you think, Sean? I really enjoyed that. I mean, she really brought a lot of things into perspective that you don't think about as a man, right? Exactly. And look, in, during our news segment, we were talking about the importance of women's contributions and the importance of Kamala Harris as uh, as representative of that. And I'm just I'm really happy that we were able to get that perspective. And I think just such a personal, heartfelt conversation about the sort of the challenges that women face uh, with abortions, with domestic violence, with um, and and I and I really loved how she talked about a domestic violence is domestic violence doesn't start when he hits you, right? Domestic violence starts when he try when he takes away your power, when he starts to box you in, you know. And uh, and as uh, Kamala Harris would say, I'm speaking. Yeah, and I think I think I just want to inject a little note here because mm -hmm. we always like to rip on religion, and with good reason, because religion has set women up for this situation. It has told men that they are the head of the household. 
that they get to say whatever they want and that goes. They are essentially God in the household and a godly woman will submit. And this is the whole problem that we've gotten into with the people of praise and Amy Coney Barrett. This is a woman who is owned by her husband. Why is she on the Supreme Court? I, I just can't. This is literally the dynamic. She is involved in a dynamic that is similar to abused women. And it just, we can't say enough about that in that this dynamic of the patriarchy is the entire enchilada, because if we don't deal with it, we'll elect another Donald Trump. I Absolutely. I think that is a really, really great segue. I'm sorry, uh, closing, because I think that really does a great job of sort of wrapping together uh, exactly connecting it to what we do here on the radical secular, right? We are all about pushing against that hierarchy, that uh, arbitrary hierarchy, that that sort of that that unearned power um, that that traps uh, us as an entire society, as a culture, but certainly, but certainly women. Um, and so um, it's been a really, really great show, a ton of fun as usual. Um, uh, look, I want to remind everyone to make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. And if you're watching this on YouTube, make sure to smash the fuck out of that red subscribe button and give us a five-star rating on your podcast host and write us a review over at Apple. Positive podcast reviews at Apple help us grow in the recommendations list faster. And uh, also tell your friends and family about the show. Word of mouth definitely matters. And check out the Just Words Fallacy Medium publication. The link is in the bio. Uh, and look, thanks everybody for being here. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Ari. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular. You've been listening to The Radical Secular, a podcast dedicated to the separation of church and state and the pursuit of justice. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. 